turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, chapter 11, beginning to read with the first verse. I wonder when the last time was that you complained about your situation in life, some circumstance of life. The chapter that we just read from, we find the children of Israel complaining. We've been following them on their exodus journey from Egypt toward the Promised Land, past Sinai, the various laws of sacrifice and worship that they received, plus the moral law at Sinai. The book of Numbers continues this journey, but... They have ceased now to be at Mount Sinai, and they begin journeying forward toward the land of Canaan. They take a three-day journey, and uh, then the cloud which they follow stops, and they stop, and they complain. We read about the complaining of the people, their first complaint, in uh, verse 1 through 3. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Apparently, the fire of the Lord here refers to the cloud, uh, which was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Uh, This uh, becomes a burning fire that burns those who are in the distant parts of the camp. But then the people cry out to Moses, and Moses prayed unto the Lord, and the fire was quenched. This was their first complaint. We're not told what they complained about. Maybe uh, some of the people didn't want to stop at three days, and maybe some of the people were tired after three days, and, and maybe some of the people were just dissatisfied, and so they complained. If you have a dissatisfied spirit, you can always find something to complain about. Then we have a second complaint. Second complaint starts in verse 4. Notice the start of it. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. The mixed multitude, if we trace it back, refers to a group of Egyptians who came out with them something of Egyptian rabble who were seeking some better situation than they had there in Egypt. Not really Israelites. Kind of half and half here. And they began complaining. Then you have the spread of this. We read, The children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Uh, This complaining spreads, and it spreads from a complaining to a lusting after flesh to eat. They state then the uh, thing that they are lusting for, desiring so strongly. It says, We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, and now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. They complain about their food. They're lusting after flesh to eat instead of the manna. They misrepresent the case. 
They picture Egypt as just one grand ball. They forget about the hard taskmasters. They misrepresent the way the manna tastes. They forget about all the mercies that God has vouchsafed to them. And the sin of this complaint is brought out in the 20th verse when God says, But even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, it will be loathsome unto you, speaking of flesh that he will give, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? God says such complaining is a despising, a contempt of him. Uh, they had <clears throat> been in bondage in Egypt under hard taskmasters. He had brought them out. He had delivered them from their enemies at the Red Sea when he overthrew Pharaoh and all of his hosts. He had given them water out of the rock and manna, bread from heaven. He had guided them. He had given them victory over their enemies, the Amaleks, when they came upon them. He had given them a special relationship to him that no other people on the face of the earth possessed. You only have I chosen of all the peoples on the earth. And yet, they are complaining because they don't have flesh to eat. He takes it as contempt of the mercies that he has bestowed on them. They talk about nothing but manna. I wonder. Do you have a complaining spirit? Are you dissatisfied with your situation in life? You're unhappy because you don't have a bigger home? I often talk to people who are sad. They're made sad because they don't have something that they want. And there's so many things that we desire that we don't have. Or something that they had and they lost. And they're really made miserable by it. They're very unhappy over this thing. And yet they're Christians. They're Christians. What do they have? They've been delivered from Egypt. They've been delivered from a terrible slavery and bondage with judgment hanging over their head. Their enemies have been totally overthrown. Sin has been robbed of its sting, death. Their last enemy, death, it's really been destroyed. Jesus Christ has conquered their enemies for them. They've been adopted into his family. He is now their elder brother. God is their father. They've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's promised to guide them and to provide for their needs and to take them to heaven to be his forever. They are his peculiar people. All of these fantastic blessings that they have, and they're unhappy and they're complaining and dissatisfied with life. And God counts it a contempt of his mercies bestowed on him when we act that way. Why, it's like a millionaire whining and beating the machine and unhappy because he put a nickel in the candy machine and it didn't come out. 
That's a Christian who's unhappy because of something he doesn't have that this world offers and someone else has it. God counts it a despising of his mercies to us. Think of what God has done. One of our members recently had to go into a jail to see a man who had done him a terrible disservice. And many of us have been in jails often, and uh, maybe on both sides of the fence here. I have. But uh, in his particular case, when he went in, he felt the hatred that these other men in the jail had for him, a free man, as he walked in. And he felt it strongly. And as he walked out and thought about it, he has a four-year-old son. And somehow the whole picture presented itself as, as himself and how God must have felt about him before he became a Christian. And that God sent his son to die for him when his attitude towards God was a light like a lot like the attitude of these men towards him. And he said, I wouldn't give my four-year-old son for those men. And yet God gave his son for me to die for my sin so I could be adopted into his family, be delivered out of that awful prison condition that I was in. This is what God has done for us if we are Christians. And so in Hebrews 13:5 it says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Be content with present things, for Christ has said, You have me. What else do you want? Be content with present things. All oh, this isn't advocating slothfulness. This isn't advocating that we shouldn't use our talents that God has given us and try to better our condition in life. God's not saying, lay down on your back, back and accept unjust situations or poverty situations when you can better them. Certainly we should try to improve our lot in life by all lawful means. But when it becomes something that's not available and we want it and we lust after it and we complain and we're unhappy because we don't have this thing that someone else has. And yet we have Jesus Christ. Oh, what a contempt of God's mercies. Be content with what things ye have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, 11 and 12 said that he had learned to be content no matter what situation he was in. He says he had learned in whatsoever state he was therewith to be content. He learned it. He said, I'm independent of circumstances. If I'm in prison as he was when he wrote that, he says, I can sing as he did at midnight. I've learned to be independent of circumstances, of things. I've learned how to be abased and how to abound. He learned it. It was a lesson that he had to learn through being abased over a period of time, being without things, and learning to be sufficient in himself through Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in writing on that passage in Philippians, 
He reasons like this. He said, uh, how did Paul think about his situation? How did he learn to be content? He says, Paul had come to this great truth by working out a great argument. Here are some of the steps of the argument. His logic was something like this, I think. He said to himself, conditions are always changing, therefore I must obviously not be dependent upon conditions for my happiness. What matters supremely and vitally is my soul and my relationship to God. That is the first thing. God is concerned about me as my Father, and nothing happens to me apart from God. Even the very hairs of my head are all numbered. I must never forget that. God's will and God's ways are a great mystery. But I know that whatever He wills or permits is of necessity for my good. Every situation in life is the unfolding of some manifestation of God's love and goodness. Therefore, my business is to look for this peculiar manifestation of God's goodness and kindness and be prepared for surprises and blessings because his ways are not my ways, neither his thoughts my thoughts. I must regard circumstances and conditions not in and of themselves, therefore, but as a part of God's dealings with me in the work of perfecting my soul and bringing me to final perfection. I must regard these situations as God's providential dealing with me for my good, because he promises all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. That's how you can be content in any circumstance not be depressed as these people were. That's the cure for depression. We not only have the complaint of the people, but we have the complaint of Moses. In the uh, 10th verse, we read this. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? You pick up his resentment at God. He's not just complaining to God. He's complaining of God's dealings with him. And he's depressed. He says, Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth a suckling child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers. Whence should I give flesh unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. This is the man Moses, the meekest man, renowned for his meekness. Notice his request of God. If thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, if you want to bless me, kill me. And let me not go on in this wretched state. The great man of God, stretched beyond his endurance, depressed, wanting to die. 
two different complaints. Let's see how God deals with these complaints. First, the complaint of Moses. How does he answer that? In verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee, and I will come down and talk with thee there. And I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. They shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. In other words, God says, All right, Moses, I will make provision for you that you'll have some help in this job that I've given you. I will take some of the Spirit that is upon you, and I will put it upon seventy other men that you choose. That doesn't mean that God would lessen his work in Moses' life. When you take a flame and you light a thousand other candles from that one flame, you don't reduce that flame. But it would be the same spirit that resided on Moses, <clears throat> resided on Moses, that would be given to these others. You know, this same provision is made for our day. In the Old Testament, you have the characteristic of great individual men who are given a mighty endowment with the Spirit of God for a mighty task. But in our day, the Spirit of God is poured out upon all flesh. That happened on Pentecost. The same kind of provision that God made for Moses to have help in the work, God's made everywhere in his church today since the coming of Jesus Christ. Every Christian receives the endowment of the Spirit for service to Jesus Christ. And the function then of the leaders, of the ministers, of the teachers, is to help these who have the endowment of the Spirit to develop their ministry. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Our job is not to carry the burden. Our job is to train God's people whom he has equipped for the task to go out and to minister Jesus Christ to men and to other members of his body. The same provision that he made for Moses, he's made now in our day, much broader. Again, uh, we see that the Spirit comes upon them in verse uh, 24. <clears throat> they prophesy. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the seventy men. The Lord came down in a cloud, spoke unto him, took of the Spirit, and gave it to the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. In other words, this promise was performed. And uh, with the coming of the Spirit, these men had something of a religious ecstasy that they went in where they prophesied, they spoke the words of God in an elevated manner, they taught, they prayed, they praised God. God had equipped them to help Moses, and he gave this visible evidence of it. God has equipped men today, laymen to carry on the ministry. What is, a, what is a great characteristic of our day? Isn't it the development of a lay ministry? 
Hadn't a layman begun to come into his own in our day and be recognized for the gifts that God has given to him? Isn't this a great thing that God's done for us? There's a movement uh, started some ten years ago called Evangelism in Depth in South America. A man by the name of Kenneth Strachan tried exercising an evangelistic ministry. He was disappointed, didn't have the results that he wanted to have. He went away to think and meditate. He observed other movements in South America that were growing rapidly, like the Jehovah's Witness, like the Pentecostals, like communism. All of them growing rapidly. And he said, what makes, what makes these groups grow? It wasn't the message because the message differed in each case. You know what he came to the conclusion? The growth of any movement is in direct proportion to the ability of that movement to mobilize its entire membership in continual propagation of its beliefs. And so he went back with a new understanding of how it could be done, a new understanding of the will of God and the Word of God. And they set up evangelism in depth, and they made a tremendous impact on South America. And he has certain observations about it. Mobilization is the key word in evangelism in depth. In its simplest terms, it's an effort to mobilize every Christian believer, man, woman, child, illiterate, intellectual, new Christian, mature disciple, in an all-out witness to Jesus Christ. There are no passengers in evangelism in depth, only crew members. The child may need a smaller oar, but everyone does his part. And he goes on to say that the pattern of church activity needs to be changed from a come structure to a go structure. It almost seems as though the Great Commission had been reversed to read, Come ye from all the world to hear the gospel. That that's not what God said. He said, Go ye. Instead of serving as a corral into which unbelievers must somehow be enticed or driven, the church must become a center from which people and the message go out to touch every needy area of the community and of the world. No other pattern is scriptural. Christians are supposed to be the salt of the earth, but the salt is stockpiled. The church has become a warehouse. Let it serve rather as a salt refinery, sending its product into a needy world. The local church, properly oriented, is the key to effectiveness in evangelism. Moses had some help with the job, but a problem developed. Two men didn't go with the 70. They were part of the 70, but they didn't go up to the tabernacle. And when the Lord came down and spoke to Moses and then put his spirit upon the other, the 68, these two were back in the camp. But the Spirit of God came upon the two in the camp. At the same time, it came upon the 68, and they began prophesying in the camp. And Joshua is upset. In verse 28, uh, verse 27, there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of the young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake, 
Would God that all the Lord's peoples were prophet, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses got him into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. In other words, <clears throat> Joshua envied for Moses. Here are two men who are carrying on the Lord's work, and they're prophesying and preaching and teaching, but they're not doing it under the direction of Moses. They're helping, but they're not doing it in the proper style here, felt Joshua. And if Moses wasn't in control of the whole thing, uh, then Moses might lose face. And Joshua wanted Moses in control of the whole thing and Moses to get the glory. But Moses wasn't concerned about getting the glory. Moses wanted God to get the glory, and he wanted the work to be done, and he didn't care about himself. Tremendous change in Moses and tremendous uh, insight into the motivating principle that Joshua was actuated by. You know, as a problem today, a similar problem, in the proper performance of the church's work, when the layman begins to come into his own, and when we begin to develop Bible classes, we begin to develop a lay visitation program, the minister kind of gets put in the background. He's not running the show. He's not in control of everything. Produces some envy. It did in my life. I've been terrifically envious of some of the laymen in my congregation at times. It's real embarrassing when one of your laymen wins more people to Christ than you do. Maybe I see another church beginning to catch fire, and I kind of envy that, and that's a wrong spirit, isn't it? Would God that all the Lord's peoples were prophets. Would God that every person in this congregation would win more people to Christ than I would, said Moses. And Frank Barker needs to say it, too. This is a problem. It's a problem in God's church today. And we can say, well, we're concerned uh, that if we start a lot of Bible classes, interdenominational, and otherwise, that uh, they may not teach the right thing. They can get out of control and get sidetracked pretty easily. That's true. That's true. So can ministers. But the, the key would be to examine any given situation as what's being taught, like Moses went down to investigate, not to quench the Spirit, lest we be fighting against God when he raises up a movement like this. To pray God to move more and more people into a ministry of this nature. This is the way to do it. And to try to give all the guidance we can to every layman who will undertake to have a ministry on his own. This is the approach that Moses was advocating here. That was God's answer to the complaint of Moses. <clears throat> he gave him help. Because there was a valid element in the complaint as wrongly as it was urged. But notice how he dealt with the people. He promised them flesh. He said, you want flesh? I'll give flesh. 
I'll give you enough meat to eat for the next month. Moses uh, has a problem with that promise. Moses says, There's 600,000 footmen, and thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain, or shall all the fish in the sea be gathered together for them? God, how are you going to fulfill that promise? There's six million people here. Notice the Lord's answer. The Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. God said to Moses, I have all power. There's no limit to my power. And I have promised and I will perform. The performance does come as we read about in the 31st verse. There went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea. Let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp and as it were two cubits high from the face of the earth. Everywhere you looked, for a yard high surrounding the camp, for a day's journey, quail, birds. So that all that a man had to do was just take his stick and go out and knock them on the head as they're flying around. And they gathered birds for two days. And the man who gathered least had 80 bushels. And then they began to eat. And as soon as they began to eat, verse 33, while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, The wrath of God was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague, a plague from God. Matthew Henry says, When we complain without a cause, it is just with God to give us a cause to complain. They really paid dearly for their lust. God grants the desires of sinners in wrath, while in love he often denies the request of his own. Sometimes the worst possible thing God could do for us was to give us the thing that we wanted so bad. And God in love denies it. Their complaint was not valid, as Moses had been. And it stirs the wrath of God, and he deals with them and punishes them. They buried there, it says, a great many of them. The end for which he did this, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, was in order that we today, you and I, might have an example, and that we not lust after evil things as they lusted. We think it's a light matter to be dissatisfied with our situation, but to God it's not a light matter. And God let this happen to them that you and I might learn a lesson. That's what Paul says. Brethren, guard against this complaining. If you're going to guard against this kind of an attitude, you must guard against anyone, any individual, who would, by his bad example, cause a spread of this complaining among the congregation. You must guard yourself from the evils of bad companionship and from following a bad example. The Word of God is a sufficient guide to enable us to discern the rightness or wrongness of an attitude or a spirit. But wherever we find a contention spirit or a complaining spirit, 
a worldly spirit, a carnal spirit, avoid it like the plague, lest it spread to you and to others, and God have to deal with you and with others. Again, cultivate a contented spirit. It wasn't from any lack of power that God hadn't given, he was able, but it was for his own purpose that he had only given them manna to eat, an adequate provision. If God hasn't given you something that someone else has, that's his business. Cultivate a contented spirit. Think of what he has given you. He's given you the Lord Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter what else he gives you. Just be grateful for that and praise him every day that you're so rich. What if you had everything else and didn't have Christ? Learn, as Paul said, to be contented with present things. Think about God's dealings with you. Think about his promises to you and his providence. Think about where he's leading you ultimately. He said, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things that you have need of will be added unto you. Realize that God's plan and God's provision today is such that the burden is to be shared by the whole congregation. It's a matter of mobilization of the entire membership. That's the name of the game today. That's the way it spreads. That's your job. That's my job. My job is not to envy. My job is to rejoice over every ministry that develops, every layman that begins to come alive and get mobilized. My job is to do all I can to further this and let God worry about the consequences. Your job is to get mobilized. That means that you take advantage of every opportunity for training that is given. That means Friday night, be here. Saturday, this coming Saturday, be here. Sunday, be here. Take advantage. This is what it means. That's God's plan and God's provision to get the job done. Of course, there are some here who are not Christians today. You're despising God's mercies in another way. You're not complaining because you've experienced his mercies and yet don't have everything else. You're saying, I'd rather have what the world offers than what Christ died to provide for me. I like Egypt. I like the onions and the leeks and the garlics. I'm enjoying that, and later on maybe I'll turn to Christ. Well, you can imagine how God feels about that. And you can depend on it. As he told Moses, Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. God's warnings will come to pass just like his promises. It's a dangerous thing to harden your heart. While it's called today, repent. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ earnestly and sincerely. Choose the mercies that God offers instead of the things this world has to offer. Commit your life sincerely to him today. Let us pray. If you would like to commit your life to Christ and you've never done it, 
really meaning business, right now, in your heart, pray the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I have despised the mercies that you offer. I've compared them with what the world offered and held yours in contempt. How wrong I've been. I open now my heart. I surrender my will to you. I put my trust in you as my Savior and Lord. Come into my life. In Jesus' name, amen.